This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank Giving Thought in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and civil society. I'm your host as ever Rod Davis uh, and in this episode we are in conversation with Ingrid Srinath. Uh, Now Ingrid is the director of the Centre for Social Impact and Philanthropy at Ashoka University in India. Um, Although I should say up front I need to make a disclaimer which is that the views that um, Ingrid's expressing today uh, are not necessarily those of her employer and don't reflect those which is a a thing that we need to have as a caveat. Um, But with that in place um, Ingrid and I got together um, to discuss, in the broad sense, kind of the context for civil society and philanthropy in India, which is something I've been meaning to do for ages and has um, you know, been absolutely fascinating. Um, but the reason that we particularly um, got together at the moment is um, that uh, you may have seen in the news, there's recently been a change made by the Indian government to something called the Foreign Contributions uh, Restrictions Act um, 2020, the FCRA. Um, and this has caused sort of shock waves of concern through Indian civil society about the impact that it will have on giving there and on um, civil society organisations and the work they do. Um, so I wanted to talk to Ingrid to sort of understand more about what the FCRA 2020 was, why people are concerned about it, what we can do, um, and to put that in a bit of that sort of broader context around Indian civil society and philanthropy. Um, so I won't give too much detail up front, except just to say, obviously, we discussed what the various kind of new stipulations within the legislation were, why these are problematic, what the rationale from the Indian government is for uh, introducing this new piece of legislation, um, how that kind of fits with what was already there and the the kind of longer term attitude and approach of the Indian government towards philanthropy and civil society. Um, Ingrid told us a bit about what the context for civil society is like in India in terms of the makeup of the non-profit sector, how many kind of uh, formal versus informal organisations there are, what infrastructure there is or apparently isn't for uh, the sector to um, to kind of represent itself as an entity and, and interact with government and the public. Um, we talked a bit about how the pandemic has affected civil society over there in India. Um, we also talked about the context for philanthropy um, and sort of understanding what the landscape for philanthropy looked like in terms of high net worth giving, corporate giving, mass market giving. Um, what causes received uh, support in India, what the attitude of the government and the public is towards philanthropy, um, and to what extent uh, sort of recent critiques of philanthropy that have emerged in the US and elsewhere resonate in India. Um, so without further ado, let's go into the conversation with Ingrid. Um, it's absolutely fascinating. I thoroughly enjoyed it and I hope you will too. Uh, and I will be back uh, at the end of the podcast just for the usual bit of housekeeping and tidying up. Okay, great. So I'm here with Ingrid Srinath. Hi, Ingrid. Hi, Rodri. Thanks for having me. 
No problem. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, and Ingrid is the director of the Centre for Social Impact and Philanthropy at Ashoka University in India. Um, and perhaps we're going to come on to talk uh, very specifically about some some things that have been happening in India um, over the past couple of weeks um, and the kind of wider context around Indian civil society and philanthropy, which I'm really looking forward to. But maybe the best place to start is just for you to say a little bit about kind of how you, uh, you know, what your role is in kind of thinking about issues around philanthropy and what work you do there at CSIP. So we find ourselves with the somewhat dubious distinction of being the first and only academic center uh, in South Asia, actually, uh, that works on social impact and philanthropy. And so we find ourselves with a huge backlog, if you will, uh, to fill. So there is so little data, so little knowledge, so little research on either civil society or philanthropy in India that we're having to sort of build that edifice of knowledge uh, brick by brick. Um, and the second uh, gap, in a sense, that we fill is there aren't very well-functioning networks on either side, again, on either philanthropy or uh, civil society. And so we find ourselves in the position just by virtue of being an academic center and being perceived as independent and neutral of being able to convene across many different divides. Uh, and finally, of course, we do uh, a fair bit of capacity building, both for students and graduates of the university, but also for nonprofit leaders and philanthropists. Great. And, and I'm sure we'll come on to, to talk about some of that, that wider work you do. Um, but I guess the, the, the obvious place to start, because it's a story people may have seen in the, the news um, all around the world, actually, because it's made headlines um, uh, pretty much everywhere, um, is around the new restrictions that have been imposed in India um, under this FCRA, which I think is the Foreign Contributions Regulation Act 2020. Um, correct me if I'm wrong on that. Um, that's uh, caused a lot of concern uh, around people kind of um, interested in civil society in India and beyond. Um, maybe you could just say a bit about what the FCRA actually is and kind of why people in India are so concerned about it. So what we have today, the FCRA 2020, is the third avatar of a law that was first enacted by Indira Gandhi in 1976 uh, to control the flow of funds from abroad that she thought were behind the massive unrest provoked by what we call the emergency, a period when democracy was suspended for over a year uh, after Mrs. Gandhi's election victory was disqualified. Uh, and the stated intent of the law was to curb foreign influence in domestic politics. Perversely, over time, that law has been amended to permit political parties to receive contributions from foreign companies, for example, uh, but has been widened to include what's broadly called organizations of a political nature, which includes trades unions, students' unions, farmers' organizations, anyone who uses a strike, a demonstration, or other protest mechanism. Um, it also, in thanks to some amendments in 2010, uh, requires organizations that have been licensed to receive international funds to renew that permission every five years. And though the Supreme Court has recently ruled that mere protest does not qualify as political activity, the government has routinely used this law and others uh, to silence dissent. 
the new amendments that have caused this great international uproar um, add even more draconian constraints. Uh, for example, they ban onward granting of monies received from international donors. They set a ceiling on the amount that may be spent on administrative costs. They require all incoming foreign funds to be routed through a single branch of the State Bank of India in New Delhi, uh, and so on. Um, I think the, the reason for the concern, first of all, is the constraints come at a time when other sources of philanthropic money seem likely to fall due to the impact of the pandemic. Um, and this new law will further reduce resources available to the sector by making it more difficult for international donors to support NGOs in India, especially those that are smaller, less well-known organizations and those whose work focuses on you know, policy analysis, research, advocacy, and the like. It also increases the government's power to summarily withdraw an NGO's permission to receive foreign funds, freeze its bank accounts, etc., in the way that Greenpeace, Amnesty, and several Indian NGOs have experienced uh, in recent times. And so there's concern for its financial impact, if you will, but also for its impact on uh, broader democratic freedoms and civil society space. Yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, it certainly seems very much in line with the kind of worrying trends we've seen elsewhere around that closing space for, for civil society phenomenon and a kind of particularly stark example of it. Um, I want to come and pick up on some of the, the specific new restrictions that have been put in place that you mentioned there and kind of um, pick those apart a little bit to see what the impact is. But could you just give a sense first of kind of how much existing funding is likely to be affected by the new rules, you know, either in terms of making it more difficult or making it actually impossible? So the best estimates we have of total philanthropy in India, that this is money available to the nonprofit sector, uh, is about 10 billion US dollars. About 2.2 billion of that comes in from overseas. And about uh, almost 250 million uh, is subgranted to other NGOs in India, all of which I should point out also have to be licensed to receive these funds. Um, about 1,300 NGOs reported administrative costs over 20% of their total foreign inflows. So that's uh, another group that accounts for about 200 million US dollars. So we're really looking at something of the order of half a billion dollars, if you will, that's going to be directly affected, but about 2 billion that where there's now strong disincentives uh, to send money to India. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I guess that sort of wider chilling effect it has on international donors, even just in terms of the confusion that it generates, um, we probably don't have a sense of of exactly what the, the scale of that is yet. Um, that'll only become apparent sort of over the over the medium term. Um, I just wonder as well, you kind of mentioned that the, the existing or the first iteration of the FCRA rule came in under Indira Gandhi and, and there was a particular rationale behind that. I wondered what the, the rationale being put forward by government for these new, much tighter restrictions is, because it, it seems to me when, when governments introduce these measures that clearly have a sort of chilling effect on the space for civil society, they, they very rarely do it so explicitly as to say, we want to limit the ability of civil society to speak truth to power. There's always some other narrative that they're using. Um, what, what is being put forward as the, as the rationale from the Indian government? 
So what they say is that the amendments are necessary to prevent the misuse of funds and misreporting by NGOs. Um, this, since since the, the act was amended in 2010, over 20,000 NGOs have had their FCRA permissions withdrawn for exactly these reasons, failure to report, alleged misuse, um, and so on. So it's not at all clear why the government needs even greater powers at this point to control such activity. And they certainly have not presented any evidence that the pre-amendment laws were somehow inadequate to the task. No, and absolutely. It's, I mean, often when you look at, at these things in other contexts, you find that actually most of the powers that would be necessary to deal with the stated problems were already there. And actually, you know, the, the extension of the powers is, is sort of hard to justify. Um, it, it's, you know, certainly from the outside, it seems the case in uh, in this instance. Um, I guess one other question before we come on to some of the specifics of the restrictions I was interested in. Do you have any sense that the the, the COVID pandemic has played a role in in sort of pushing the government's thinking on this? Because I know in other contexts, we've seen lots of concerns raised by civil society organisations about the fact that the short-term necessities and demands of the pandemic have been either deliberately or just sort of inadvertently used by governments to push through emergency measures that have resulted in shrinking that space for civil society. Has there been any sense that, that the government is is kind of seeing this as particular to the moment, or is it just something that would have probably happened anyway? I can't see any direct connection. I mean, if I had to sort of speculate, um, it's true that civil society has, in India, has shouldered the burden of responsibility for responding to COVID. And in fact, the government's response has typically been, you know, late, inadequate, uh, and inconsistent. Um, So... There was a sudden, there has been in the last few months, a sudden, almost uh, overdue recognition and appreciation for civil society from all quarters. And there's been more positive press, more businesses and philanthropists talking positively about civil society, even government functionaries. Um, So is this a backlash against that? Is this to... um, You know, there have been instances when civil society has made government look quite bad during the pandemic. Uh, just by contrast. So is this sort of, you know, an attempt to control it in response to that? What seems more likely is just pre-COVID, we had um, nationwide protests against uh, new citizenship laws that many saw as discriminatory towards religious minorities. And there have also been pre-COVID and during the pandemic, very large-scale protests by farmers and others against new laws. Um, the government has certainly tried to cast some of these protests as being instigated by or supported by foreign funding. Uh, even the most recent case of this very brutal rape and murder, uh, where police have filed uh, charges against unnamed foreign entities who are allegedly seeking to use this crime as an opportunity to discredit the government. So there has been... that. There have been protests. There's been um, perhaps a a way to discredit those protests is to suggest that they are foreign inspired uh, and the passing of these laws helps to maybe build that narrative. 
Yeah, that's no, no, that's that's really interesting to hear, and it makes makes a lot of sense. I um, just want to to move on to kind of pick up on um, some of the specifics of the restrictions that you mentioned. If we take the one on uh, onward granting first, so so the, as far as I understand it here, the restriction is that organisations who meet the other requirements in terms of having the bank account in, in the specific branch in New Delhi with the State Bank of India in place and, and are kind of registered, would be able to continue to take money from, from foreign funders, but they can't then, they have to then spend it themselves operationally. They're not allowed to onward grant it to any other organisations. Is that correct? Correct. And it's not at all clear what this amendment is supposed to, what purpose it's supposed to serve, because Prior to the amendment, um, two things were true. One is only about 11% of all incoming foreign funds was being regranted. And secondly, you could only regrant money to another organization that had also received permission uh, to receive foreign funds. So all of these were sort of in the government database, could be easily tracked. In fact, both grantors and grantees are, were required to report these transactions quarterly. So it's not at all clear why it was necessary uh, to ban on granting entirely. No, I mean, that's it's bewildering, certainly if there was already a rule in place where both you know, the existing onward grantees would have to be registered anyway. And it, it does seem, from looking at the rule, as though whether it's an intended or unintended consequence, if you had to design a new restriction that would you know, maximally penalise the smaller organisations within civil society who would struggle to access foreign funding themselves, this would be the way to go about it. I mean, is that a particular concern that that the organisations who will be able to meet this requirement will be only a very small handful of large organisations that can can spend it on their own operations? And actually, there's a much larger number of small civil society organisations for whom this will be a real challenge. Absolutely. So, I mean, you know, as you know, most international donors don't have the local presence or the knowledge to identify which NGOs are doing the most impactful work in a particular uh, domain. Uh, And so they depend on intermediary organizations, including um, international NGOs and large Indian NGOs, to sort of fill that gap for them, uh, to help them select grantees and to channel funds to them. And also from the grantees' point of view, simplifying uh, their ability to access uh, international resources, as well as you know, lessening the donor's transaction burden. So I'm thinking of a recent grant, for example, which um, funded a network of 67 organizations delivering COVID relief in rural communities. You know, the donor in the new regime would have to make 67 individual grants. Uh, we'd first have to find, you know, identify who these 67 individual recipients might be and then make 67 individual grants, which would have 67 separate reports, uh, which would have to be processed and so on. So it, it significantly increases the transaction burden on international donors. And weirdly, it actually, I mean, you know, a donor who's truly committed to India may still take that on. But I'm thinking, for example, of millions of diaspora Indians who are not citizens of India. So if you're a citizen of India, regardless of where you are, your money is not foreign. But if you're a a person of Indian origin, and and the Indian diaspora is the most generous diaspora in the world, it contributes the largest amount uh, to charities back home. For a diaspora Indian, this is now almost impossible. 
uh, they, they completely depended on intermediaries to help them navigate uh, the the civil society space in india um and the other part of this is what international donors were funding were the causes where um that indian donors are not yet comfortable funding right so this is the ones that f- support the most marginal communities the lowest caste groups uh the indigenous tribal communities lgbtq Q groups religious minorities certain geographies the far northeast for example causes that haven't yet maybe gained traction with this with indian donors like climate change uh human rights freedom of expression um particularly work that you might call further upstream like policy analysis research uh all of those are underfunded domestically and so these are the groups and the issues that will be most adversely affected by the ban um, on regranting yeah i mean that sound it just that definitely sounds concerning and it it certainly i mean it it's it so clearly goes against the grain of all of the conversations in the world of kind of cross border philanthropy and international development where funders are trying as hard as possible to find ways of you know shifting the power down to the the lowest possible level or to kind of local groups and communities this just seems to put another barrier in the way of those funders who are trying their best to do that which is which is definitely a concern i think um i i just uh, wouldn't come on to the i mean if we take the the linked question then of the 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 physical bank account so as far as i understand it here this requirement um is that now in order to be eligible an organization would have to have a dedicated bank account into which funds that the foreign funds that fall under fcra um would need to go but on top of the existing requirements around that it now has to be not only with the state bank of india but in a specific physical location in new delhi is that correct that is correct <laughs> which is i mean i wasn't quite sure i had it correct but um which surely i mean again you know might might be as far as i mean from the outside it strikes me that's probably okay for large organizations that might have a presence or a headquarter there but for many other organizations just the physical geographical barrier of having to go to new delhi must present enormous challenges so one hopes that they will um you know create a system where you can go to your local branch of the state bank of india and have them open a, an account for you in the new delhi branch uh but certainly you know there's been no rationale provided for this one assumes that it's supposed to make tracking easier uh in an age when this government in particular has you know actively promoted the digitization of financial transactions this really seems quite absurd um and and you know this is there's what 2.2 billion dollars of fcra money coming in there's 40 billion us dollars of inflows by way of foreign direct investment and those funds aren't required to go through any one bank or any one branch so why the excessive the disproportionate scrutiny of this money when presumably if i wanted you know to fund something nefarious in india i could just as easily do it uh, through foreign direct investment yeah absolutely which and and maybe just quickly on on that i i guess something we could come on to later i mean are are there any tax advantages to doing it through a a kind of non-profit or charitable structure uh, as opposed to doing it through uh, investment in a commercial enterprise to the foreign entity no <laughs> right okay 
so there's yeah so actually there's literally nothing to be gained and uh, I mean right, already okay. already <laughs> before these amendments um, you know many bank officials down the line the the person the teller you dealt with in your local branch had very little understanding of FCRA and so they would routinely block transactions from say Indian citizens who live abroad because they just assumed that they were covered by the FCRA when they are in fact not so what's going to happen is that these new amendments are going to make banks and bank officials even more wary about handling NGO transactions. And, you know, they will tend to avoid risk. And so they will tend to sort of preemptively block or just, you know, presume guilt um, in every case uh, rather than take the risk of clearing a transaction that they might later be held to account for. Yeah, I, I, again, yeah, I guess it's that not even so much the specifics of the the requirements, but the confusion it generates. And as you say, then people, if they're risk averse, then what's the incentive for them to go out on a limb to to bank NGOs? Um, yeah, I mean that strikes me as as potentially having quite a wide chilling effect. Um, and then I, I guess the the third major requirement that has been introduced or strengthened as far as I understand it as part of this um, this new measure is that um, it's now stipulated that no more than 20% I believe of um, money that, that is subject to FCRA can be spent on administrative expenses which I think to people listening clearly ties into a wider conversation that's happening around you know philanthropy and civil society in lots of places around the world about what constitutes a core cost and what the views of donors and others are on what it is appropriate to spend on. But this, you know, this is kind of the government coming in and setting a hard limit on it. Um, is there actually a kind of clear definition of what constitutes an administrative expense? And, and again, what's the rationale for this? So the Act defines administrative expenses as salaries, travel expenses, uh, of members of the executive committee or governing council of the organization and any managerial staff. Program staff, this is people out in the field, uh, are exempted from being classified as administrative expenses. But it also includes rent, utilities, stationery, printing, office equipment, all accounting and financial management costs, all legal and professional charges, even the cost of writing and filing reports. So it seems like, again, the, the amendments seem to seek to imply that NGOs are somehow misusing resources, you know, or, or enriching themselves or living large rather than directing resources to the communities they serve. It seems to be aimed more at building that, that narrative than actually uh, changing anything. What it does do, however, is it makes investments in infrastructure, in technology, in research, uh, much, much harder. Um, and it probably renders some kinds of nonprofit organizations, think tanks, providers of legal and financial services, policy research people, um, advocacy organizations, almost unviable. So Either the government has a very limited understanding of the range of nonprofit work, or it's deliberately trying to make certain kinds of work much harder, or it is just trying to discredit the sector, or all of the above. Yeah, it's, I mean, it is hard to see, I think, putting the, the different requirements together, how if you are not allowed to spend on things that include 
salaries at a headquarters and paper and printing reports, and you're not allowed to make onward grants, exactly what you could spend. There's a pretty limited range of things that you could actually spend these funds on, from what I can see. And again, and again, there's, you know, what is the government's local standard in any case to tell a donor how they should spend their money? Uh, there is no equivalent constraint placed on funds uh, that are coming in as direct foreign direct investment. There is no such constraint placed on contributions to political parties, which international organizations incorporated in India can make via an entirely opaque instrument called the electoral bond. So, you know, it's singling out one sector uh, for this preferential treatment uh, while letting the much bigger and more powerful sectors um, do exactly as they please. Yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, absolutely. And, and one thing that struck me, actually, you were saying there about, you know, it will make it much more difficult to do certain kinds of activity, but also to invest in, you know, digital transformation and, and others. One one particular problem that, that it kind of occurred to me might happen over the longer term is that is that a, a solution for some organisations to these challenges would be to look to rely more on you know, domestic Indian philanthropy but that I, I would imagine there's still more to be done to develop the infrastructure that is required for that. But that is precisely the sort of thing where it seems that looking to foreign funding of a type that will probably be uh, classified now as administrative spending is precisely what's required to put the infrastructure in place in the, in the first place. Um, I mean, is, is that perception right? I mean, what what is the kind of infrastructure for giving in India at the moment and is it kind of an area in which people are actively trying to to develop the infrastructure to build that culture of giving more? So the infrastructure is woefully underdeveloped. Uh, I mean evidence is our, our, my own centre. Uh, the fact that we're the first and only academic center studying philanthropy in India is an indicator of this. But other aspects, you know, whether it is even capacity building, for example, is underinvested in. Um, all kinds of research, all kinds of um, um, policy work, all kinds of convening work are, are underinvested in. And it has been foreign donors that have uh, sort of compensated or tried to make up the difference. Uh, so Placing this limit on these administrative expenses is going to make it much, much harder to build the infrastructure philanthropy needs. The one new development that may offer some promise is the government has announced a new social stock exchange, uh, which uh, is supposedly going to provide uh, a fundraising platform for both social enterprises as well as nonprofits. Uh, and they have developed a whole slew of new instruments uh, through which this funding could happen. So it's certainly that that's one investment that the government is making in creating one kind of infrastructure. But it's unlikely that people who channel their money to the social stock exchange are going to be funding, you know, improvements in nonprofit governance, for example, or a study into what the true overheads are uh, of nonprofits. Uh, as has actually paradoxically it was the same week that Britspan just launched a study on on this whole overhead question, the pay what it takes, a question that you referred to up front. Um, that sort of work is going to become infinitely more difficult. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to come on to sort of broaden the context out a bit to talk about you know Indian civil society more generally and and the context for philanthropy to give people listening a better sense of that. But before I do, um, obviously on this, this is a very pressing concern at the moment in India, and I think should be a concern for others. What can anyone listening who you know works in civil society or in a funder or as a philanthropist do that that is useful to to people in India who are trying to to kind of navigate these new challenges? So certainly uh, sharing, you know, the most current and the most uh, accurate information is is the first thing. Um, because as you said, there's so much, you know, um, unclarity uh, on, on what, what these things mean. And, and it, it is resulting already, at least anecdotally, uh, in some funders saying, you know, well, why don't I just take my money to some place that is easier to navigate? Um at a time, of course, when, you know, everywhere on the planet requires more funding than it currently has. Uh, so, so so just just helping to sort of disseminate this information and making it clear what exactly the implications are, I think is important. Uh, certainly, uh, there's been, I, I, there's been a lot of media coverage of the issue. And I think that's helpful, uh, just in terms of uh, building public awareness uh, of, of the consequences of this um and its implications for civil society um the third thing is i mean I, I presume at some stage there will be a legal challenge uh to these laws uh and you know helping supporting that kind of not so much financially but supporting that work with by way of knowledge or uh information that helps to you know that that comes from other parts of the world where you've grappled with similar issues uh, might also be helpful just in terms of pointing out how this law, for example, the International Commission of Jurists has pointed out that the law uh, violates uh, the International Convention for Civil and Political Rights and other international laws. That's the sort of intervention that's, that's helpful. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm certain that there are plenty of people who will want to, to do what they can. And, um, you know, um, hopefully people listening to this podcast will kind of take that away and, and be able to uh, to kind of usefully contribute. Of course, they will. Of course, they will reinforce the government's belief that there are all kinds of foreign <laughs> foreigners up to no good in India through Indian civil society. Yes. Which, which is, I guess, the catch-22. And those of us sort of outside India who want to help need to be careful that in trying to do so we don't exacerbate the problem. Exactly. Um, um, but in, in terms of that kind of broader question about um, civil society, I guess, in India, um, can you give us some sense? I mean, it's a big question, but what, what the kind of existing context for civil society in India is like and what the, what the sector, the non-profit sector, looks like? I mean, is it largely made up of informal organizations what's the geographic distribution around india what's the sort of makeup of different cause areas that are that are focused on so the short answer Rodri, to that question is we don't know um in 2011 a government survey uh reported that there were 3.1 million ngos well non-profits registered across india uh, because it's very hard to shut down a non-profit it's not clear how many of those were sort of defunct organizations and how many were still functioning in 2011. It's also not clear how many of those were sort of, you know, neighborhood uh, welfare groups or the Board of Control for Cricket in India or trade associations or schools, universities, hospitals, etc. Because they're all lumped 
together in this hodgepodge of laws where anyone can register under any one of several different statutes. Um, so we, yeah, we, we, what we do know, for example, is there are about 220,000 organizations that are tax exempt. Uh, this lot we know are filing their tax returns, and so we know they are um, they exist and are are not defunct. But they also include all the ones I mentioned earlier, from the Board of Control for Cricket in India, all the way through you know the Neighborhood Cultural Association. Um, what I think, if if you're looking at what you might call development oriented NGOs, uh, it's not clear what exactly that number might be. Uh, if I had to hazard a guess, I would say it's under a hundred thousand. Um, the um, which, of course, in a country the size of India is is very very small. Um, the the other thing, of course, is that 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 organized part or that registered tax exempt part of civil society is very much the tip of the iceberg, because underpinning that are very large, very vibrant grassroots movements of all kinds, farmers' movements, trades unions, uh, people uh, fighting for the right to information, uh, people who fought and won um, the right to work under the National Rural Employment Guarantee Scheme, uh, gender groups, all kinds of groups out there. And even larger than those are the faith-based organizations which, because they pay no taxes, uh, we have no way of enumerating at all. Interesting. Um, and, and in terms of the that that picture, is there any sense in which the 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 civil society world or the not the specific maybe non-profit kind of tax exempt of it does it see itself as a sector and is there infrastructure that reflects that? I mean, are there kind of you know membership bodies for? the sector as a whole or for different elements of it that are able to represent the broad interests of the sector and try and influence government and others? No. So this is, I mean, the, this, there are some networks. They are, again, woefully under-resourced uh, and unable really, but they don't, not, don't really, rep, they can't be representative. You know, I mean, if you have, I don't know, a few hundred members in a country the size of India or even a sector the size of India, that's that's hardly uh, representative. Uh, so on each of these parameters, you know, whether it's knowledge about the sector, whether it's networks that help build cohesion, solidarity, voice, whether it's the development of norms on, say, transparency or on compensation or on ethical communication or any of those things, ethical fundraising, those have been hard to develop in the absence of uh, this infrastructure. And there is no one to to counter this negative narrative that has uh prevailed over the last decade or so of the nonprofit sector somehow being either ineffective or inefficient or corrupt or possibly anti-national. And, and does that is that narrative, as you say, it's over the last decade, at that point, was it a relatively new phenomenon or before that had there been a more sort of positive narrative from government or they just not really thought about civil society at all? So I think there was this sort of golden period, if you will, between uh, that came right after the emergency because <clears throat> civil society groups were, were, were hugely uh, important in the sort of struggle against uh, the emergency. And many of those groups, in fact, then went on to sort of become more development-oriented NGOs. There's also a strong Gandhian tradition 
uh, that sort of comes from the the freedom struggle, uh, and many of those groups had sort of uh, continued to operate in this very Gandhian, with this very Gandhian ethos. Uh, so from say the late seventies to uh, about twenty ten or so, uh, was this this wonderful honeymoon period when when NGOs were trusted, respected, uh, valued. And all of those. It was around 2012, actually, when protests against, um, you know, the big dams in Gujarat, the the nuclear power plants in Kerala, when those started to really um, be successful, actually, uh, is when this narrative about the foreign hand um, and anti-national activity uh, got revived. In terms of, I mean, guess that narrative, but more broadly, what's the the sort of public perception of civil society in the nonprofit sector or the relationship people have? I mean, is there a sense that it is something that people have, you know, affection for or affinity with, or is it viewed with suspicion by the public as well? Um, so I think it's both, paradoxically. So I think, you know, uh, the nonprofits that, that the average citizen comes in contact with, so the 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 school that's registered as a trust that your child goes to or the neighborhood clinic that dispenses uh free medicine to to people or um the the organization that 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 feeds uh undernourished children in 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 schools for example these are all highly valued and 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 respected um the the ones that are seen with more suspi- or viewed with more suspicion are the ones that what you might take a more what you might call political with a small p um stance so if you're challenging the government on um for example nuclear power or on the displacement of a community for a bauxite mine or um pointing out the government's human rights abuses or those kinds of things, then um, there's greater or lesser trust, shall we say. But I should point out that, you know, this is a country where all of our institutions have been tainted by some form of scam or scandal. This is government, politicians, business, sports, uh, even Bollywood. So uh, it's a low trust environment generally. And so I think People are more, most comfortable with organizations they know and and are for acquaint, personally acquainted with, as opposed to anything that is you know slightly more remote. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that distinction between generalized trust in institutions and sectors and the level of trust that people have in individual organizations that they have a relationship with is is something we see reflected i think whenever talking about public perceptions of charities or non-profits around the world and as you say if the the starting point is that the generalized level of trust is that much lower than then the challenges are clearly that much greater um i just just wanted to come on and, and sort of talk a bit about the specific question of philanthropy as a means of funding civil society and again I'll ask you a fairly difficult question but if you could give us a sense of kind of what the the existing context around philanthropy and giving is in India in terms of you know how much kind of high net worth philanthropy there is at one end and how much kind of mass market giving at the other and whether you know you have foundation structures and what sort of role they play um so I mean 
like almost anywhere in the world, India, you know, has millennia of uh, a philanthropic tradition. I mean, I was recently for a class I was taking, uh, dug out something from a Hindu scripture that goes back to 1500 BCE, which sort of enjoins um, charity on on the good ruler. And you know, every other major religion in India, Islam, Sikhism, Buddhism, Jainism, Zoroastrianism, Christianity, Judaism, all of them require uh, charity uh, in one form or the other. Um, it's in terms of sort of big philanthropy or, or high net worth giving, that's mostly uh, uh, grown in the in the post-globalization era. So starting in the early 90s, when 1990s, when um, a huge amount of wealth was generated through the privatization of public sector entities, the opening up of this semi-planned economy to private investment and uh, to the world, uh, where huge fortunes were made in information technology, financial services, those kinds of domains. And as those individuals have sort of turned their attention to philanthropy, they've changed the nature of the beast. I mean, so they've brought a more technocratic approach, first of all, to their giving, uh, but also they are more hands-on, more metrics-oriented, more big bang and yet short-term uh, outcome um, expecting philanthropy. Um, again, the data is not very good, but um, corporate philanthropy in the form of this 2% of net income that businesses are mandatorily required to contribute uh, amounted to about 1.7 billion US dollars last year. Uh, private giving, private domestic giving from all sources, foundations, high net worth individuals, and the public at large is estimated to add another 5.5 billion US. And about half a million only comes from what you might call retail giving to NGOs. Uh, the much, much bigger uh, giving is uh, giving to religious entities and within one's community uh, would probably about be about four and a half billion US, which makes the, the total pie worth about 15 billion US annually. It's fascinating to hear that in terms of the overall makeup of the funding. It certainly sounds as though the, there is quite a strong emphasis then on on that funding at a at a higher level, which obviously kind of raises questions about having a broad base of support and what that means for, you know, uh, legitimacy of of certain causes. And um, what's what's the perception of philanthropy by the government and the public? I mean, is it something that is largely viewed positively, or is it you know something that's viewed with scepticism? Um, philanthropy, uh, I think, hasn't yet come in for any of the sort of critique that. Uh, you've seen in other parts of the world. It's um, I think the sheer scale of the need in India is such that it makes every kind of philanthropy welcome. And it's only been a couple of decades, you know, since it became okay to be visibly wealthy even uh, in India. And so I think we're not yet at the stage where people are judging uh, how much people give or how you give uh, or where you how you made the the fortune that that fuels your philanthropy. Uh, it's uh, there's just a general approval of of philanthropy. That's yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I guess if, as you say, if the 
the the need is so great that actually just the, the sheer fact of giving is seen as a positive. And let me say about the government, I mean, this government paradoxically has been more open to partnerships with philanthropy than any government hitherto. So uh, the Gates Foundation, for example, has been a huge partner in everything from polio eradication to fecal sludge management to all kinds of, of, of issues around health. Um, there's an active government partnership or the government actively seeks partnership uh, with philanthropy in uh, some of the most back in helping to uplift uh, development in some of the most backward districts in India. Uh, there's, you know, all kinds of schemes in, uh, under which the government is seeking. So the government, uh, when, when the prime minister launched his big uh, campaign to build toilets, you know, that was something uh, private philanthropy rushed into to build millions of toilets all over the country. Uh, there, then when he shifted his focus to this, building this large statue of, a, of a, one of our freedom um freedom struggle pioneers and, and early government figures. Uh, again, both uh, public sector and private sector companies rushed in to fund uh, that. His most recent venture, a fund called, uh, which acronymizes to PM Cares, I think it's called the Prime Minister's Citizen Something Relief in Emergency Something, I, I forget the exact <laughs> um, expansion of it, um, um, has again received a huge response. So um, there's this, this essentially like, say, the Chinese government. Uh, this government seems to be very welcoming of a certain kind of philanthropy and a certain kind of civil society organization. So as long as you focus your money and your attention on uh, closing the gaps in the delivery of services to uh, the most marginal communities, so being that low-cost provider of last mile services that's a fantastic that'll be well um, received and and well um, appreciated as soon as you ask start to ask questions about why there are these gaps in the services then you sort of become less you fall out of favor if you will um, so so there is this weird paradox of it being the most welcoming of of uh, philanthropic partnership and at the same time uh, placing the most constraints on it. Yeah, and I mean, and that pattern we're certainly seeing in so many other places where it's it's very easy for governments to be positive about philanthropy and civil society in a sort of instrumentalist uh, way in terms of it taking the burden off them to to meet welfare needs. But actually, as you say, it's those bits where they you know organisations then go on to awkwardly challenge government policy or ask questions where they tend to get a lot less po uh, positive unfortunately because if you're the one of whom the questions are being asked it's often not very comfortable but also also for example we have among the lowest tax incentives for philanthropy anywhere in the world and mm. and, and they've been progressively whittled away over the last few years till we're left with almost none um so this is again a paradox you know here's a, a, a country that could do with as much philanthropy as it is possible to generate, uh, but does not provide any sort of policy uh, level incentive uh, for that kind of uh, money to be forthcoming. Yeah. 
um, I'm aware that we're in, in danger of running slightly long. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I just just wanted to ask as a final question on on that around philanthropy. Um, has there been have you seen any sort of noticeable changes as a result of the pandemic in terms of either the narrative around philanthropy or the response of philanthropy in India to to the needs that have been created? Yes. So first of all, there's been, I, I suspect, as in other parts of the world, there's just this massive surge in all kinds of giving. Uh, so big philanthropy has sort of focused its attention on filling the gaps in you know, frontline healthcare, whether this was sort of supplying equipment or or PPE or uh, vaccines, not vaccine, we haven't got to vaccine, the ventilators and so on. Um, there's... Um, reports that online giving, for example, has grown by about 180%. Um, and literally every category of Indian, wealthy, middle class, poor, uh, has responded in cash or in kind or by volunteering. There have been millions upon millions of food packages and meals that have been provided. Uh, stranded migrant workers have been helped uh, to find shelter, get home, have livelihood support, even less popular causes, uh, you know, LGBTQ groups, sex workers, uh, issues like mental health have found support. So there is, uh, you know, there's disasters always um, evoke this surge in giving, but this, of course, is unprecedented in its scale and its pervasiveness in in terms of everyone uh, giving in one form or the other. Uh, there's also, I, we hear from philanthropists, uh, much more appreciation of civil society. I think they've, you know, witnessed up front uh, the role civil society plays uh, in closing all these gaps, in ensuring that issues get amplified, uh, that voices that are unheard get heard. Uh, and, and also just the sheer bravery of people, of civil society workers on the front lines. So there is a greater appreciation of civil society. There's also some greater understanding of the root causes of some of these problems. So that it's not enough to provide livelihood support to a migrant worker that's out of a job, but that we do need to look at, you know, employment conditions more generally and social protection more generally, uh, that we desperately need to make investments in uh, the public health system. So I think there is that there's that kind of shift in understanding and awareness happening. There's certainly a much greater appetite for collaboration um, within philanthropy, among philanthropists and between and among civil society organizations and between the two. Um, so there's a lot of uh, positives that have come out of this pandemic, which of course in India we're still um, we're still in the first wave. We still haven't got it under control. And so there's likely to be another several months at least of, of need on that. Um, but yeah, it, 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 and it will bring, it has brought completely new people to philanthropy. Uh, there have been, for example, a lot of startups, uh, tech startups that uh, for the first time have engaged in philanthropy. Um, other people who've, you know, really focused mainly on education and the like suddenly uh, had their eyes open to, for example, the surge in violence against women that we've seen as part of the consequences of the pandemic. So it's broadened horizons, it's deepened appreciation of civil society, it's brought new players to the table, um, 
all of which hopefully will will sustain in the longer term and translate into uh, a less hostile environment for both civil society and philanthropy. And that's uh, <laughs> done very well to come up with an optimistic note on which to to end things there. Um, although obviously, you know, kind of going back to the start of the conversation, there are some some real challenges in the shorter term. Um, it just remains to say thanks ever so much for finding the time to come on the podcast. It's been absolutely fascinating to to find out more about uh, the Indian context and kind of what's going on there at the moment. And um, before I let you go, is there any last thought you want to leave people with or anything you've got upcoming that you want to direct people's attention to? Not really. <laughs> That's absolutely fine. I'll put links in the show notes to various things I know you've written about um, the FCRA and kind of other stuff that we've talked about to do with Indian uh, philanthropy and some places where people can get some more information if they want to to find out more. Um, other than that, just thanks ever so much, Ingrid. And certainly it would be a delight to get you back on the podcast at some point in the future when hopefully we can talk about why these uh, new FCRA restrictions uh, went away. Thank you, Rodri. Stay well. Okay, great. Well, my thanks again to Ingrid for coming on the podcast. Um, and as I said there, I've put links in the show notes to all of the various things that we discussed where you can find out more about the FCRA. Um, and, you know, if you certainly work in the world of civil society or funding and this might affect you or you're concerned about it, you know, please do get in touch and think about uh, any kind of uh, positive actions that we can take to support the work going on uh, in India to try and push back on these new restrictions and make the case for why they are both unnecessary and potentially harmful. Um, if you're interested more broadly in uh, issues around philanthropy and civil society, do check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Uh, follow me on Twitter uh, at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis, or if you like stuff on kind of history and philanthropy and very long threads with lots of GIFs in them, uh, at Philiteracy. Um, if you've got ideas for topics we could cover on the podcast or people I could be talking to, drop us a line at givingthought at cafonline.org. Other than that, just like, subscribe, tell all your friends about it. Please do give us a nice review at iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. Uh, and we will see you next time. Bye! Bye.